It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, can violence be unlearned? Can you take someone, say, who's grown up with physical brutality, who believes that might makes right, and who's got a long criminal history to prove it? Can you take a person like that and change their ways? Well, a lot of people would say no. It's too late by that point. The kind of violent felons who stock our jails and prisons are not going to turn around and become nice, peaceable citizens, and we shouldn't waste our time trying to change them. Well, today we're going to hear from two people who disagree, who have not given up and who say that the cycle of violence can be broken, and they offer their own experience as evidence. Sonny Schwartz is a criminal justice reformer who works with violent offenders in the San Francisco County jails, and Ramon Garcia was himself one of those offenders and now works to steer others away from violence. I'll talk to both of them right after this. Okay, on to part one of our show today, an interview with restorative justice worker Sonny Schwartz. A little over 12 years ago, she founded a violence prevention program in the San Francisco County Jails. It's called the Resolve to Stop the Violence Project, or RSVP for short. In the program, inmates with violent pasts work together to discover the origins and effects of their behavior. Schwartz has a new book out. It's called Dreams from the Monster Factory, a tale of prison, redemption, and one woman's fight to restore justice to all, and it's full of stories of people changed by the RSVP program. The evidence isn't just anecdotal. Dr. James Gilligan, the well-known psychiatrist and violence expert, studied the program, and he found that men who took part for a mere eight weeks had a 50% lower chance of being rearrested for violent crimes. After 16 weeks, that rate dropped by 80%. We're going to hear some stories from the Resolve to Stop the Violence Project and learn how it works from Sonny Schwartz. You take a lot of visitors uh, to see San Francisco jails and to look at your programs. Yes. If you were taking me through the jail and showing me an area where your programs weren't in operation, what kinds of things would I see? Yeah, you would see different cell blocks of 20 men, to 30 men in a cell block, sometimes an open dormitory where there's 62 or a tier where there's 70 men or women just shuffling around, literally picking their teeth, playing, hearing the the yelling uh, of dilapidated TV, blaring some inane television show that's on. And you just see this decay of the human spirit. And it, it's a it's a tragedy uh, because they're just sitting there idle, festering in their pain and anguish and resentment and hostility. So cut to another tour, one that shows areas where your programs are in effect. Juxtaposed to that, you have you have an open dormitory where there's four different groups of twenty, of fifteen or twenty, in different groups with a chalkboard in, in each area completely focused by and large this intense focus and passion to understand the 
the causes of people's attitudes, beliefs, and behavior that fuels their violence. It's a curriculum, particularly in our violence prevention program called RSVP, where it's a peer-run and peer-based program where the men who are in jail are teaching other men how to stop their violence. At least as you describe yourself in your book, you are anything but a bleeding heart. I mean, you describe some of these guys as monsters, dirt bags. You said you... After you learned about their crimes, you wanted them to pay. Yeah, it was pretty paradoxical. Um, I am a bleeding heart, though, I got to tell you. <laughs> I really am. And I went into this business and this world and this career because I really wanted people to have their voice and to have the tough advocacy that the rich folks had. I really never, ever called anyone a dirtbag. I felt so sick and sickened by particularly crimes against women and children. I have to be honest, you know, when I was, and I chronicled this extensively in my book about wanting, you know, deeply and passionately to represent the people. And when my boss and I had the reservation, I said, I got to tell you, though, I have some issues about representing people with crimes against women and children. He said, ah, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. Well, my first client, I was horrified because he was a child molester and a rapist. So... It was my nightmare in front of me. Now, I didn't mean to imply that you actually called someone a dirtbag to their face, mm -hmm. but in the book, you do use that expression once or twice. I think uh, you say dirtbag wife beaters, you know, yes. for instance. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, at that time, too, I was really, really, like, I can't say it on the air. It was like, really, like, f*** you, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, who the f*** do you think you are? Mm -hmm. You think you're a big, tough guy, huh? You're the king of the castle. Look at you now. Well, your first visit to uh, one of the San Francisco County jails. Yeah. Uh, there's a young guy talking trash to you from his cell, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was walking down Main Line, a long corridor with bars, and there were about 15, 20, 30 men in a tank. It was like, I think in that, the count was like 500 men and on that floor. The sounds and sights were just horrifying. And... Uh, you know, as I say, I'm I'm not twiggy here. I'm not, but I really was shaken by it, and I pretended not to be. You know, I had stuck my chin out and tried to get on my south side strut, you know, and <laughs> pretend I was walking in my old neighborhood. But something clicked in me. There was one last whistle where somebody was. I mean, they were saying really vile things to me. Hey, baby. Hey, this. And come over here. Get me some. Blah blah blah. And it was just one last whistle that just. I snapped and I walked right up to him and said, what are you doing? How dare you? Who the f*** do you think you are? How do you think, how would you feel if you're, someone talked to your mother that way, your sister? And it was like, no one ta talked to him that way. No one challenged him. And he totally backed off and his face and demeanor completely changed. And he was like, his face was like, I get it. You're mm. right. You know, I'm noticing that what you just said wasn't, really belittling him. No. It was holding him to a standard of behavior that you hold anybody. That's right. Outside. 100%. And that works. It absolutely works. It it always worked for me. Whenever I pretended or was was um if there was any remote feeling of infantilizing or humiliating, that's a losing proposition. It's not effective, and it, it's not effective, I don't think, in the short term, and it's not effective in the long term. Every time I talked really upfront, people responded. It's like, no, 
that does not feel good. Why are you talking to me that way? How, that feels horrible. You do not have a right to say that to me. I'm a human being. And I was like, well, you're right. Do you think you as a woman interacting with, with male prisoners in, in many cases, do you have a, a extra power there in the sense, uh, an ability to make them feel a bit ashamed or... or yeah. Could, could, could a guy like me saying exactly the same thing have the same effect? It's a good question. Probably, it depends on the person. It depends on delivery, like anything else. Well, Women I'm, I'm thinking if I said to a guy who insults me, you hurt my feelings, uh, that ain't going to work. Say, oh, I'm going to punk you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. right. Um, I don't know. In RSVP, men do that to each other. You mean inmates themselves? Yes. Yeah. That really hurt me to say that. We yeah. had an inmate, wow. check it out, like the first year of our program, a deputy was doing lunch relief who wasn't trained. And the first year we trained all of our, we cross-trained all of our staff. That was the beauty of the success of it as well. Um, and there was a deputy who came from another facility who did some um, lunch relief or something, um, fill-in for staff. And he didn't know anything. He had a chip on his shoulder. He said, oh, he walked into RSVP. He was over her saying, this is the bad boy's dorm, huh? I'll show him who's bad. And he kicked the chair of one of the prisoner students in the circle and said, get that blanket off your head or, off your head or something. The, the prisoner turned to the deputy and said, Deputy Blop A, it really hurts my feelings that you did that. <laughs> the deputy was like, what? He was like, he didn't know what to say because you didn't, it was so out of context. And I hear men giving each other support in the program all the time. Hmm. I want to remind listeners that when you say RSVP, you mean Resolve to Stop the Violence, the name of the program you yes. started in the San Francisco yes. jails. Um, and I want to talk more about those methods um, and the kind, of, um, the kind of etiquette and all of that that you guys have come up with uh, shortly. But you tell a lot of stories in your book, and I, I want to hear about one now. This is uh, the story of um, uh, a prisoner you call Ben. Mm -hmm. So Ben was this wiry 19-year-old kid who had a swastika etched inside on top of his skull. He did not want to be an RSVP, Resolve to Stop the Violence Project. He was kicking and screaming and using racial epithets, saying, get me the heck out of here. He was a, he was a skinhead. He was a skinhead. A white racist skinhead. He was a white racist skinhead. You could see that swastika pretty plainly. Absolutely. <laughs> it was inked on his skull, and uh, and his head was shaved. Um he was a walking provocation. He was a real scary little dude. And uh, we mandated him into it, as we did with a lot of our um, student prisoners. He, uh, his last crime was he beat up um, someone he thought was a homosexual in the hate district in San Francisco. And he didn't want to be there. Within six months, Ben was really reaching out to the other students in the program, and in fact, became best friends with an African-American man, Elroy. And by the way, he was using the N-word pretty liberally prior yeah, to that. he was. And uh, the N-word, the K-word, the, uh, as I say, you know, he had a thing against black folks, Jewish folks, and gay folks, and he would run rampant in, on those uh, particular people in those communities. Did he know you were Jewish? Um, we didn't talk about it until later. I don't know if initially he did. I mean, Schwartz is my last name, I, you know, unless 
Although some people, some people on the West Coast, I don't know if it's a West Coast thing. I remember somebody in jail said, oh, I know somebody with a New York last name like that. I said, New York? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a euphemism, I guess, you know? <laughs> so um, I don't know if he did. He probably did. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the men actually um, that I ran into in jail in the early days, in the early 80s, and I would confront them, they'd have the double... Uh, uh, lightning bolt on their tattooed, which was the Aryan Brotherhood or some racist derivative. And I would say to them when I was a law intern, I said, how can I give you uh, service? I said, you you, you want to annihilate me in my community. I'm Jewish. And inevitably they would say, ah, we don't care about the Jews. It's only the ends. Mm. And uh, I said, uh, oh, that does not make me feel better. Let me tell you that. Um, anyway, back to Ben. Ben was, uh, within six months of the program, um, from kicking and screaming, using the N-word, and um, he became, he started to open up. He started to utilize the program, um, started to go into the circle to deconstruct his, what we call the male role belief system that fueled his violence and his racism and his hate and his and looking at his, his shame, basically, and what that was about, the underlying issues of his meth and heroin addiction as well as his hate. So so he started assisting you at the program. He became a real believer. We, we hired him as an intern. He he got out. He really got into the program. He was really showing amazing progress. And we hired him, as we do hire other interns, to become facilitators, um, to teach other men where, where they once sat um, a year ago, perhaps, so one day, I mean, one one of the things that happened, and it's something that we still talk about, restorative justice principles is what has been guiding uh, this program. And restorative justice principles are very, very simple. Um, not easy, but simple. It, it just recognizes that crime hurts everyone, victim, offender, community, and it creates an obligation to make things right. It's about giving back to communities that they that you have harmed. So one meeting, I was talking about getting an invitation to Temple Sinai in Berkeley. A synagogue. A synagogue. And I said, does anyone want to join me? And I left it at that and went on to other business. And the next day, Ben came to me, nervous as can be, saying, I couldn't sleep last night. I was thinking about going with you. But what do you think? Do you think it's right? Do you think the congregation, if I want to, I want to say how I want to restore, do anything I can to restore the community because I have created havoc in synagogues in San Diego and beaten up people I thought were Jewish. Um, and so I was hoping he would come forward. And so lo and behold, a month later, we were driving across the Bay Bridge going to, uh, there was a Seder, it was called a Peace Seder. And, this um, is a Passover. A Passover for the, for the yeah. Passover uh, Seder, yeah. um, an annual uh, holiday that, memorializes the Jews free from sa- slavery, which is a really um, a holiday that many of us from various communities can really rock out to. And so Ben came with me, and he spoke. And when I was looking around, we were both quite nervous. Ben particularly had a, a, a healthy uh, suspicion of, of fear <laughs> and, and uh he had the spilkies, as we'd say, you know. <laughs> so he, and as I was looking around, I saw one uh, older man, East, 
East European accent. I heard him, and I looked down, and there he had a, a tattoo from the concentration camp on his arm. And I was like, oh, my God, what have we done? We're not, still not sure, you know. So you've the, got a man who's who's a survivor of the concentration camps. You've got a former Aryan Brotherhood skinhead, skinhead. with a swastika tattooed on his head. Not visible, though. By that time, the, his hair grew out, <laughs> and he was wearing long sleeves. He had other, um, you know, racist tattoos on his arms, and he was wearing long sleeves. So this was like more than a year later, his hair grew out. He had long sleeves, so they didn't know what they were about to hear before Ben got up to speak. Ben told his story about how he was, yeah, this racist, anti-Semitic skinhead, right, and how to- he trashed synagogues and beat up people and. And how sorry he was. And how did they react, and including this man? Well, it's really chronicled well in my book, but I'll give you a sneak, <laughs> sneak pe- preview. They were, at first when Ben started out, you at first heard muttering, and I can't believe someone like this is here. And, and you know, you saw people's faces that were visibly pained. But when he got turned the corner in his story and talked about how sorry he was, you can he- not only hear a pin drop, but you can see people's faces go from tension to relief. And at the end, um, you know, Ben kind of got teared up at the end of his disclosure. And I stood up next to him to to try to finish for him because he seemed virtually done. The congregation stood up and clapped. And that old man with the thick East European accent came up and wouldn't let go of Ben's hand. And, uh, Really, he couldn't let go of his hand and how grateful he was because he never, ever thought he'd ever hear the day that someone affiliated with Nazism would say they're sorry. Mm. How unusual is the story, Ben, in terms of uh, transformation? It's unusual because it's this was such a dramatic. Here was a skinhead person, you know, a member of the skinhead group who hated all these groups, who ended up becoming best friends with the African-American, who ended up going to a synagogue. I, it's dramatic, but I maintain, Robert, that given the right opportunity, this would be a dime a dozen. I'm, I, I'm serious. Um, You've got stories of other guys in here. Oh, yeah. They're... Who start out real hard cases, racists. Maybe you've got some um, stories of black prisoners who hated whites or at least Absolutely. seem to. homophobes who who come full circle yeah okay so pretty amazing results let's let's hear how this actually works okay okay so like i'm a what's a day in the life yeah what's a day in the life and maybe um you know imagine i'm a new guy who you're approaching a badass Mm -hmm. who really has no interest in this so how does it work okay robert welcome to rsvp um this is an opportunity for you to really get a lot of support, to really have you look at why you ended up here. And um, what we would do is get another man who's in RSVP to be a peer support for you. Now, what if I say F you? Right, which happens. Yeah. I mean, believe me, it's not like, oh, okay, let me sign, let me sign up, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, I'm violent. Yeah, it doesn't happen that way. As a matter of fact... Um, the first year, the first couple months of the first year was pretty, you know, dicey. People were like, get me the heck out of here. Are you kidding me? I, you know, they, they, used to th- they thought it was like, I'm not drinking this Kool-Aid, you know, type mm-hmm. of thing. 
we had this thing called the bounce system. If somebody was really, you know, being defiant and disruptive, we take him out. A lieutenant and a civilian program person would sit Joe Smith or Robert down and say, okay, what's, what's going on? I'm not violent. You're not violent. And they'd come armed, pardon the expression, with his rap sheet. And really, it was a consciousness raiser all the time. Nine out of ten times it would work. You're not violent. Okay, look at this. And unfortunately, the rap sheet was the size of a Santa Cruz uh, phone book. Um, wait a minute, that's me? You know, most people don't see their rap sheet. Really? So, so they're not, like, walking around conscious of all the things they've done? Denial is the, it's staggering. It's stunning. I didn't do all this. What are you talking about? I did all this? Wait, that's me? What? And it was like... To see it in black and white, they're not stoned, they're not chucking and jiving in front of a judge, they're right there after the fact, or waiting trial, because we work with both. I'm telling you, nine out of ten times, that works. And we have the lieutenant there for a reason, not to, it's like this, this, for, this camaraderie of working together as opposed to a hammer. But that uniform does have power. But the uniform, who's speaking from that uniform, even has the more power saying, look, Robert, do you want to continue to go home and sleep with one eye open? How do you think your kids feel? Don't you think they deserve better? Don't you think you deserve better? We're going to really ask you to take a good look, and we're going to try it for 10 days. I want to ask you to try it for 10 days. If after 10 days you still want to go, we'll talk and consider it. Again, at least nine out of ten times after ten days, they say, no, I'm cool. Leave me here. What's going on in those ten days? It's just a matter of being in an environment. They see it's demystified, first of all, that all the rumors that go on in jail, like in life. You know, they get, to, they get a reality check of what's going on. They see some people that they know from the streets participating. Look, we're all creatures of, creatures of our environment. What what are they participating in? What They're sitting in groups. Yeah. Um, that is, men are taking turns. What is called going through the destruction cycle. That's our man alive curriculum, that works with violent offenders. They're going through the destruction cycle. That it's like almost like a movie that they take every step that that they realize what fueled, what triggered their violence, and they see all the men participating and giving. That man, man, particular man who's going through his cycle, getting enormous amount of support, an enormous about, amount of compassion, as well as no-nonsense feedback. Um, you know, people respond to that, that, that especially the compassion part. It wasn't a judge, it's not a judgmental group. Don't get me wrong, it's not kumbaya, but it's really um, underscoring their potential and their humanity at the same time, their accountability both all three are true. They are participating. They're listening once a week to survivors of crime come in to tell their stories. And that's profoundly powerful. It starts to open their hearts more. I imagine you have some guys who come in to your program already, you know, ashamed of what they've done, Mm -hmm. maybe not willing to admit it, but feeling bad about it, already aware that it's wrong. But I'm, I'm guessing you also have guys who, for whom violence actually has been one way of getting over in life, you know, uh, in situations where they might not have succeeded. Otherwise, they did succeed in getting power, getting respect through violence. Are they different? Yes. Is it different working with guys who, for whom violence has been a positive thing? 
um, virtually all the men, it has been a positive, a contextually uh-huh. positive thing. Uh-huh. I mean, these are not first offenders. offenders. They, you're talking about men who have, you know, when I was a law student in 1980, I now today, in 2009, see the grandchildren of the men and women I worked with in 1980. We're talking about third generation of incarcerated people in my tenure. That is heartbreaking. Mm. So we're talking about violence, poverty, despair, illiteracy being the rule, not the exception. That doesn't mean we don't have a chance. It's an uphill battle for sure. But we've seen the most miraculous Ben is one story, and there's a lot of Bens out there. What do you think distinguishes the people you work with in the jails from people who never never get into trouble that way? God, that's a good question. I think opportunity is a biggie, just huge. Um, I see it with my own kid. I see it with, um, I remember we got this award at Harvard. It was the first time I went to Harvard, and I was sitting in Harvard Yard, and I was that time smoking a cigarette and going, my God, can you imagine? And I was thinking for my own self. I said, "Can can you imagine if you were raised in this kind of environment? My God, can you imagine those kids, the people who we work with, their kids, if from get-go there was somebody always saying, you can do it, you can do it, here, we're going to do this, we're going to provide this. That sounds like a, a pipe dream, I know, but I think opportunity is huge. Um, I think trauma, and trauma in, that's not dealt with is huge. Because, you know, rich folk have trauma in their own way, too, but they have access to dealing with it. We learn a lot about you in this book, too. You decided to put yourself and your own life in here. Yeah. A lot of details, a lot of intimate details. Yes. From your your troubled youth to um, what you call your patented dysfunctional relationships. Yes. That's one of your phrases. Yes. Uh, Was that something you decided from the outside, or did that... uh, is that something you yeah. figured out later? Oh, good. These are great questions. Um, no, I, I wanted to write this book, as I said from the beginning of this discussion, to show people what's going on behind these walls. And when I went to, and I was talking with my literary agent, she said, okay, Sonny, where are you in this process? Because I never intended to put myself in there. I just wanted to show the world of what we can do. I said, what do you mean, where am I in this process? She said, you know, why are you so passionate about it? I think you really need to talk about your struggles. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> so I realized soon after I really contemplated, she was absolutely right. You know, I'm talking about and expecting through my work these men and women to look themselves in the mirror, to go really deep to figure out why they do the things they do and how they can stop it and to feel for the first time, not using so they're like raw we're insisting on that because particularly thinking that that's the way to get healthy. And I figured I have to put my, you know, my own money where my mouth is. And there's no coincidence why I chose to work in jails, as I talk about in my book, is that I struggled deeply about my, my own shame in being in school. I probably had a learning disability. I was in Chicago public schools in the 60s. They didn't know from that. But you were thought to be a bad student. Oh, I was a terrible student. I, I, I tested low. I was in remedial classes. I was in the dummy classes. I started ditching school. You know, it was a lot of pain, a lot of humiliation. My ki- 
you know, the kids in my, some of the kids in my neighborhood, they didn't know from that. What's a Jewish kid doing in a remedial class? Pretty unusual. Oh, my God. They were like, what are you doing? I, was, I remember one time I was gone for Yom Kippur uh, holiday, and my classmate said, where were you? Yes, I said, oh, it was a Jewish holiday. You're not Jewish. <laughs> it was, yeah, I said, yeah, what can I tell you? I'm one of those unusual ones. So, um, but, you know, I thank God I can laugh about it now, but at the time it was really a source of pain and humiliation, and, and nobody was, no one went to bat for me. And my parents were overwhelmed with, you know, three other kids and trying to make ends meet and whatever, maybe some sexist stuff going on. I was the youngest girl in the family and whatever. She'll and your brothers gave you a hard time. My brothers gave me a hard time. Yeah. And they, they did. They gave me a hard time and I, tr I gave it back as much as possible. So, um, yeah, so it was, a, you know, so I understood um, that part. It was very personal to me. This book is very personal, as my work is, as I think it is to all of us to various degrees. I think, you know, when I talk to the men in the jail and the women, there was always, a, you know, even though there was this, oh, God, p peculiar foreign, oh, my God, get me out of here place, there was also this paradoxical familiarity. You said the first time you stepped into that jail, it felt like home. I totally felt like home. I felt like I was talking to myself or people in my neighborhood. It felt home, and that's bizarre. That is interesting, you know, isn't it? Yeah, what's a nice Jewish girl feeling like jail is home, you know, but truly it was, it felt like home. I felt like I was back home. And there was, it was that much more meaningful to me because I, you know, when I was in my, in the dummy classes, we would ditch school together, we'd hang out, um, do some, you know, mild drugs, um, and we never talked about grades, never, ever, ever. So there was a safety there. And there was a certain safety I know for people in jail for with each other in a very gross way, though. Um, you know, you 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 hook up with people that's familiar, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You 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 reveal stuff about your relationships in here, yes, including a relationship you had with uh, a, an employee of the sheriff's department yeah. who worked with you. She was a facility. You commander. call her Becky Benoit. 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 Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Not a real name, I'm assuming. It is. Oh, it is. It is. Well, what's it like to reveal that in this well, book? Well, first of all, I, she was okay with it. That's the good news. And, and regulations were okay with it, I assume. Oh, too, yeah, we were. We weren't. We were out about it. You okay. Know? So there was no secrets. Yeah. Um, I can't. Yeah. Um, I had a very significant relationship with um, the woman who was the facility commander, who was a captain. It was. Amazing, and it was a very difficult relationship because we ate, slept, you know, drank, work, mm. and it was it was it was fantastic because we really were able to create amazing programs together, as well as with our assistant sheriff, who was also a friend. Mm -hmm. So it was um, we were deeply passionate about it. That was the good news, and not so good news was that, uh, you know, the relationship needed a lot of work, too. And it didn't um, get the kind of care, and ultimately it didn't work out. And it didn't work out for some unexpected reasons. <laughs> we won't that, reveal that. We won't reveal that. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, here you are in a position of, um, I guess, authority in yeah. the jail system. You know, you are on the corrections side in yes. a way. Yes, yes. Um, you're working with all kinds of um, offenders, you know, on their problems. What's it like now to have your life be an open book in that environment? I imagine everybody there knows all about you 
if they didn't already. I'm fine with it, actually. Um, I stand, my sexuality is, I'm pretty out. I'm out everywhere. So I remember when we were working at Cottage Jail 7 creating the programs, the prisoners had yard and they saw us walk away together at that time, my then time, par- then partner. And that was never a problem in a place where there's a lot of homophobia? You no, know, there's a lot of homophobia and that's a really, you know, it's a interesting, that's a whole other conversation. It was not a problem with us. Yeah. Now, I get the impression as a, as an onlooker and as a journalist, um, when it comes to rehabilitative programs, uh, educational programs, other programs for the incarcerated, that they almost never play well politically. Politicians don't typically profit from promoting them. In fact, they tend to profit from eliminating them, being tough on crime. Yeah. How does a program like yours survive? Yeah, well, it's always... um it's always a challenge, if you want to know the truth. Uh, we've had our budget cut numerous times, not because of our sheriff, but because of the state budgets and funding. You know, it, this is such an important area of discussion right now, this soft on crime stuff. And I, I want to underscore a couple things. You know, there is always this assumption, if you're doing programs for prisoners, you're coddling them. Here is the reality check again. 90% of the people are coming out after they've been sitting and stewing and rotting and doing nothing to take responsibility for their actions, to doing nothing to prepare themselves for the outside world. Now, that to me is the biggest insult to you and I as taxpayers. That to me is soft on crime. What we do is getting them up, is emulating the standards and practice of a pro-social world, up and ready to go at 7 a.m. They're in programs, sun up to sundown, not to a Dr. Feelgood program, but programs that require them to really dig deep and be introspective and learn how to stop their really offensive behavior so they can become taxpayers instead of tax drainers. That, to me, is tough on crime. Has your work with... um prisoners in the San Francisco jail changed you? Absolutely. You know, again, I write about it, my my own issue of, you know, I emulated my brothers and my father, and I talk personally about that, and and they're raging. And unfortunately, I I learned from the best as well. And, you know, it came out in in really painful ways. I thank God I was never physically violent with with anybody or a loved one, but emotionally, I I think I've uh, I know I had my issues. But also, more importantly, just really learning how to be more honest um, and really telling the truth. And this book, I think, I think being around RSVP and the men and women who have worked so hard really helped me, enabled me, as well as my own work, my own work in therapy and elsewhere, to tell the truth in this book. Mm-hmm. Well, Sonny, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Sonny Schwartz directs the Resolve to Stop the Violence program in the San Francisco County Jails. She's the author of Dreams from the Monster Factory a tale of prison, redemption, and one woman's fight to restore justice to all. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Next, I'll talk to someone who participated in the RSVP Violence Prevention Program and who will tell us about the effect on his own life. Ramon Garcia was an inmate in the San Francisco jails when he got into the program. After his release, he worked as an RSVP facilitator for eight years, passing on the lessons he learned to other men. Now he continues that work on the streets and in the neighborhoods of San Francisco. 
What is your background? How did you uh, end up in, in San Francisco jails? Um, domestic violence. Uh-huh. Want to say more about that? Yep. Um, well, basically, like, just relationships in general, um, growing up, it was based on a lot of image. So girls girls were attracted to most, most guys in the neighborhood by the type of image they carried around with themselves, so... Sort of a macho image, you mean? Yeah, or just the image of being able to just to have money to be able to do whatever you you want to do whenever. <clears throat> so, I also fell fell in the category of growing up selling drugs, trying to keep up an image, not really, you know, knowing who I was with low self esteem at the same time. So, what uh, what era was this, and where was it? Um, this was like the um, the early '90s and the late '80s. Uh huh. So, so period when crack was yes, common. Yes. Is that is that one of the things you did? Yeah. Were you were you a, a thug? Oh well, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider myself a thug because it was like I didn't like I I felt the shame. Like once I understood what I was doing, I really felt the shame, and it was like I was benefiting at the at the expense of other people's misery. How how old were you when you you started uh, selling? Um, I would say eleven years old. Oh, really young. At, at that time, did it just feel cool, or or did you have some regrets about it even then? Well, at, at that time, yeah, it felt it felt actually cool because it was like I looked up to all the guys who were doing it before me, who were a lot older than me, and they had a lot of nice things in the in the environment that we were growing up in. And sad to say, a lot of those guys aren't here today to even made some positive changes in their lives. Do mm. you mean to say they were killed in the yep in the line of uh, Business, yep. or either they're in jail, or they killed somebody. Or it's just like it's, it, a lot of circumstances. What what neighborhood was this? Patrol Hill. Oh, it was Patrol Hill. That's yeah. where you grew up. My whole life, mm. I'm, and I'm still here. Well, my mom is still here. Mm-hmm. And I just I, I I stay around until I'm able to put something together to be able to get her away. So you live there now, um, you know, 10, 15 years after you were a kid doing that sort of thing. Do you see the same things going on now? Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same? Pretty much. It's just a different environment. It's different because it, it, the, the, the people growing up participating in the activities are different, and they play by a lot of different rules. It's, it's, not, it's like no rules now. It's like no, I mean, no rules, like... Youngsters basically do anything to get by to anybody. So, so what rules were there back in the '90s when you were part of that world? Well, well, you knew not to, you knew you knew to try to keep stuff private, not to disrespect people's parents, not to sell dope in front of people's parents, not to sell dope to people's parents, not to you know disrespect older people in the neighborhood, even the elderly people growing up in the, I mean, around in the neighborhood who who live here, who who like it to be quiet, who don't like a whole bunch of stuff going on, you just knew to just respect them. It was it, just a different sense back then. Interesting, because I think, uh, you know, at the time, uh, in that period you were talking about, the general perception was that uh, it was worse than it had been 10 years before and 15 years before, and there were no rules then. So you're saying it's even worse now. It's even worse now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, back to your story. So you were you were starting out um, 
in that uh, in that life, you know, very very early, very young. And I didn't know how to communicate in relationships, so therefore it was a lot of problems because everything in a relationship that I knew of was just based on image, and you had to play a role. So you were playing that role for the sake of uh, other guys, you know. Basically, sort of, yep, for yeah. acceptance from other guys, not you know, and having more issues than I had to begin with. And uh, that meant being uh, physically violent with your girlfriends and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's what got you. That's what got you. Your locked up generally. Locked yep. up. My first time, eighteen years old. I went to jail for domestic violence. It's, it, it was just so common in my neighborhood, so I didn't. I was in denial about myself being violent. Was there even an attitude that uh, if you weren't violent, that you were uh, weak? Exactly, because it's just the belief system that most men are, are raised on that you have to be non-caring, non-emotional. You just have to do for do for self, do for family at any cost. And I grew a long way from that. Especially after being exposed to a lot of the information. Tell me about that. The uh, the programs in the jails that you eventually encountered. I mean, how did you get into them? Uh, when did this happen? And, and well, this happened in. Well, I got um, I got familiar with RSVP, and I would say ninety nine. Okay, this is the resolve to stop the violence program. Yes, RSVP, which is really it's it's a man alive curriculum. The curriculum that we use is called Man Alive, Men Allied Nationally against living in violent environments. Man alive. Yes. So that that plays a big part also now today because I'm I'm still influential and I'm able to go pretty much into every neighborhood that a lot of people can't go to because they're not allied with those neighborhoods. But me, I bring a whole different movement because it's all about trying to get us all together on the same page to strive for no violence. You were you were how old uh, at the time you in ninety nine when you you first got into these programs? I would say about twenty twenty three twenty two. Was this the original uh, sentence that you you had that you talked about a moment ago? Or well, is this... well, previously, like I, I had been in jail for domestic violence maybe twice, or I would say three times maybe, and every time I would I would just plead guilty because it was like I was caught red handed, and after the second time of going to jail for domestic violence. It was like I had to really think about, do I have a problem with violence? And and I did. So Was there uh, three strikes to consider also? Well, not really because it was it was a deal involved. So uh-huh. it was like you, you, you go to these classes for and you stay on probation, you go to fifty two weeks of classes, violence prevention, domestic violence classes, and you do three years on probation. So basically I, I did nine years on probation and over three years of domestic violence classes. And after completing for the final time, that third time, is when I had an opportunity to just go back. And I started off as an intern, and I've taught everything from sexual education, health education to to job readiness to violence prevention, domestic violence. Like, I've, I've taught... All and all ranges with with no schooling, with no schooling, just all based on my own experience of going through these programs. So the programs that you went through in the San Francisco County Jail it was peer education. Is peer education inmates working with each other? Exactly. Well, let's um let's step back to that time in '99 when you first entered one of these programs. 
what was your attitude then about that, and uh, what was, uh, how did it work? How I did was it... in denial. I thought somebody was trying to change me. I didn't know change was necessary for growth. Anything that has to, that, that changes, obviously grows. Anything that grows, changes. It's, it's, and now I understand that I had to change in order to grow, but I'm like, these people trying to change me, I was in heavy denial. I didn't even notice that I was lying to myself about who I was, my experience, what I needed to do. It was just heavy denial. Well, what was it about this program that changed your mind? Because it, it gave me an opportunity to really look at my behavior. And now that I look back, it's like every situation always escalated. So I would always put, my, I would put myself in a situ, situation where either somebody would have to possibly hurt me or kill me or I would do it to them. So they had no choice but to call the police. Mm. Sounds like, uh, you know, sort of pride and turf and uh, honor and all that. Yeah. All that stuff was at stake all the time. That's how I felt. Because, yeah. Because when you grow up, was my experience, when I, went, when I grew up, you know, <clears throat> living in an image, I didn't know who I was. So I had to keep this image alive. Like, it's always a constant show going on. It's always an act. So now that I'm in tune with myself and I know who I am, I don't have to live up to an image, even though I still like nice things. I love nice things. I can't lie. I love nice things. I like clothes. I buy a lot of those. Yeah. But I don't get caught up in the, in the whole acting part. And, you know, that's that's how I get through to a lot of guys, too, because it's like I still like all the same things everybody else likes. But when you sit down with me, it's a different story. Well, let, let's take an example then, okay? So... Ramon, you know, like 15 uh, years ago, uh, steps out on the street and someone calls him out, right? Mm -hmm. Someone says something challenging. How would you react? It, it, would either be, it would either be an argument until somebody stopped arguing, and which arguments always turned into fights, and there goes the escalation right there. Okay, so now let's cut to today. What, what would happen if somebody did that to you? Pretty much, basically, nobody challenges me because it's like people know what I stand for. So, if I know if some if someone says something disrespectful to me, that's just a reflection of where they're at. So I don't bite into it. So you just you just shrug it off. It is what it is. If that's how they feel about me, then everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But if they honestly don't know me, what can they say? Mm. If if they don't know me and they they have some hateful words towards me, then I obviously just assume that it's, it's just pure hate. So you don't take up with it? Mm -mm. Do you say something back? Do you say, is this no, I just, I just, you know, honestly, I just pray for them. Because uh -huh. sooner or later, they'll get what they're asking from from somebody. And it's like, people know that I'm not go, I don't go there. I don't do that. I'm happy to be here. I've, I've, I've had to bury a lot of my close friends due to, due to just arguments. I want to get a little more specific about how that program worked for you, how, how it, uh, how it happened that you, you went in thinking, uh, this is not for me. Nope, I was in denial. In denial. So so was there a moment? Was there something they did? How did it work exactly? Well, first, it's like you can't get this information in one day because this information, it, it lets you know about expectation of authority based on expectations. I mean, expectations of service based on expectations of authority. And, a, and just a quick example of an expectation of, of authority and expectation of services um, 
a, a parent and child relationship. Since I'm the parent, you listen to me. So that's the expectation of authority is I'm your parent. The mm. expectation of service is you listen to me. Mm. So it it just it showed me how to look at things in depth and really understand where most things come from. Most things come from expectation of authority, and the expectation of authority all lies in the male role belief system because most men believe that they're dominant to anything, anybody, and anyone. Do you think underneath that is fear, though? All the time. Everything is fear-based. <laughs> Everything is fear-based because it's, it's, been my, it's, been my, it's been my experience that people will be afraid of not being looked at as a strong man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the stronger a guy appears, uh, maybe the more scared he is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, so when you started, I mean, you, you've kind of given us the impression that you thought violence was the manly thing to do, you know. Um, at, at what point in this program did you start to have second thoughts about that? After my, after, after that, like after going to jail again for that last time, the third time, and and fortunately having a lawyer and being able to get out and get the same deal that I previously had two times, it's like all oh, this isn't worth it. Mm, yeah. I've already wasted six years of my life in and out of jail, running around on these streets, playing a game with my life. Hmm. And uh, and there was the three strikes potential out there. I mean, you could have exactly. ended up in, in prison for life. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like me understanding that I've got away, I've gotten away with a lot of crimes as a child that I'm I'm lucky to be here. So I grew up participating in a whole lot of crime as as a as an adolescent. So I really had to start looking at my life saying that, man, I don't, and then going to all the funerals over the years, it's like I don't want to end up just dead and, and I haven't done anything. Uh, at what point did you uh, get out of uh, jail for the last time? And I, I believe it was 1999. Oh, so, so 99 was the year you first got into RSVP. Exactly. And 99. I've been through a bunch of programs before that. But that one, that's the one that turned it all around. Oh, man. Yep, that's what turned it all the way around. Well, I'm, I'm curious. What's so special about that program? The information, just being able to under, like, you, I, you, would, have to, you would have to look at the information. You would have to see the, the information presented on the whole scale. And it's like when people disclose the incident of violence, see, when people disclose the incident, uh, incident of violence to me, I'm able to break it down and play it in slow motion so they could see where they made a decision to violate somebody based on an expectation of authority and mm. it's all behind mm. being a man. I just want to be I want to be the man. You know, it's really interesting to me uh, as we talk about it is I think the public has probably an image of violent guys like you used to be as um really like completely uninterested in why they are violent. You know, pretty much accepting that whole thing. And, and what you're saying to me, it sounds like, is you really wanted to know why, why you were doing what you were doing. And when someone finally explained it to you in a way that made sense, it changed things. Exactly. So you were already questioning. Exactly. I was already looking for myself. Uh-huh. Because I, I knew that it, it was uncomfortable for me to be who I was. I didn't know who I was because, 
I grew up in a society where it's all image and acting, even if it's not cameras going. Even even if there are no cameras rolling, it's still image and acting with most guys. <laughs> they're, they're, they're playing a role. We, uh, we are um, directing our own movies. <laughs> so and we have this thing going on in our head, and we try to fit people in the roles. Does does popular culture play a role? I mean, uh, you're, you're talking about movies and, and acting. Um, Everything, and this is crazy because it's like if if people really understood, cause it, well, believe I know some people who understand, but it's not enough people to put it out there and to get people to wake up. So it's like if people really understood what most people were doing with their lives, they would probably be chasing their dreams instead of somebody else's. Mm. So it's been ten years, really. This is almost like. Uh, you know, ten year anniversary for you, uh, two thousand nine. Now, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, you're doing you're, you're doing this work now. You say on the streets. Yep. How do you even approach a person? Uh, well, I know most of the guys. Like, I'm I, guys. I, mean, I get see. This is this is the weird thing. I get calls all times of the day, all times of the night. Guys dealing with issues with their families, with they with they with their partners, with their children. I'm just a support system. Is there an incident that's happened recently you can tell us about? Well, guys call me every day with incidents. Like, I, I put out a lot of fires. I put out a lot of fires. What's a, what's a recent example? Like, um, a young guy got into it with his with, with his girlfriend, which happens to be a a, a sister of, a, of another guy who's from a, a rival neighborhood. He put his hands on this guy's sister. This guy was raised to never let nobody put their hands on his sister. He's ready to throw his life away and do something to him for putting his hands on his sister when I'm trying to get him to understand that that's not worth it. That's not going to solve it because then you take yourself away from your sister, your family, everybody will love you, and then how are you going to be there for support and protection then? So I, I just had to calm that situation down recently. Well, not calm it, but, you know, resolve it intervene had them all sit down and talk once 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 things were cool on both sides had them all sit down and talk is is this a problem though that um we see a lot of guys who have been through the system you know who now regret what they did when they were young and they'll go into classrooms or they'll talk to kids and say don't do what i did i mean it doesn't pay it uh you know you'll lose in the end but the kids, um, and tell me if I'm wrong here, the kids say, well, wait a minute, you did it, you had all that fun, you did the good stuff, and now you're telling me not to do it just because later on you decided it wasn't a good idea. Well, I'm going to do it while I'm young, and maybe I'll change my mind when I'm your age, but why should I stop now? Well, when I deal with a situation like that, like, for real, I have countless obituaries. Like, I've lost over 90 friends, 90 close friends, immediate friends that I know personally, I grew up with, playing with to gun violence, all to gun violence, like in the last, I would say, 90 friends. This is in the last six years. 90 friends? In the last six years. Throughout, throughout California, from Vallejo, Oakland, Richmond, Fairfield, San Francisco, Sacramento. I take stacks of obituaries places, man. Just let them see. And it's like, it doesn't pay because nowadays it's like I'm I'm definitely lonely I'm in the class all by myself because there's nobody I can hang around because they're participating in things that would make me guilty by association so that could cost me my life 
Hmm. So it's like guys do things so so sneaky and behind people. They don't think that everybody knows that they're participating in a word I like to use is buffoonery. Hmm. So uh, I don't. I don't. It's like with the kids. I listen to them. I listen to the kids, and that's the main thing. Like people always just want to tell kids to do this and do that, but you can't tell a kid to do this and do that. That's what's so beautiful about my relationship with my nine-year-old daughter. And it's like I listen. I listen to her. And, and the listening itself is. That's what makes the difference. If you just pay attention and listen to them. Because most people just overreact and re- react to what they hear instead of just listening and then responding. People just hear nowadays. People don't listen. So everybody's probably asking, you know, how can you, if the program that you were in in jail is so successful, how can you take that and apply it before people land in jail, before they kill somebody or get killed, you know? My goal. It's going to be a long, hard road, but who said it was going to be easy? <laughs> Well, Ramon, it's been a a real pleasure talking to you. Definitely. That was Ramon Garcia of San Francisco, recorded in 2009. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, saying goodbye until next week. Do check out our website at 7thAvenueProject.com.